Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, Damian Williams, who's been writing, talking, thinking, teaching, and learning about philosophy. Comparative religion, magic, artificial intelligence, human physical and mental augmentation, pop culture, and how they all relate to one another. Code isn't neutral, it's a language. With any language, when you go to translate, your perspective is going to have unconscious effects on the kinds of translations that you make. Damien will be speaking with us about how the algorithms running our society have been embedded with the same prejudicial values as the people who program them. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. You're on Team Human. I'm really excited about our guest this week, Damian Williams. He's uh, brilliant and personable and human, and he sees what's going on from many important perspectives at the same time. Uh, but before we get to him, I just have to share to you something that's been going on in my little town over the last a couple of months, we got a new uh, administrator for the school district this year. And on the first couple of days of school, he was like so enthusiastic about his job in our district that he started to post pictures of kids in classrooms on social media. And not just like one a day, but like 50 a day of kids learning stuff and all that they're doing on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter. And um, it was all really positive, but parents started to get concerned that there's these pictures of their kids doing stuff, their kids' faces and where they live and where their classroom is going on these social media platforms. And it was as if the administrator didn't understand that these are private platforms, you know? <laughs> <laughs> as if he's unaware of who constructed our social media platforms and for what purpose. So uh, I was asked to give some advice or counsel to help them come up with a social media policy for our school. You know, particularly when you've got an administrator who's going into classrooms and telling teachers to be on the lookout for social media opportunities and to keep their smartphones at the ready so they can take pictures of things during the class day and post them on their private uh, social media feeds. So I, I'm trying to uh, help my town reckon with this and instruct the administration as to what these things are. You know, and what I've realized is that 
you know, everybody, however smart you are, whatever position of power you're in, even if you're a school administrator, you can still get addicted to this stuff. You can still forget who owns it and what it's for. So if you are having this problem in your district, here's some of the things I think you should remind your teachers of, remind your administrators. You know, first, most simply, that social media makes money by encouraging engagement. They want eyeball hours by any means necessary, and they employ really advanced psychological tactics in order to make people feel bad if they're not checking in or if they try to leave a platform. You could look at something like the streak feature on Snapchat. Where did that come from? That came out of the Captology Lab at Stanford University, where they're studying how to capture and maintain people's attention. And it's going to make anybody, a teacher or a school administrator or a student, feel terrible about missing posting. The techniques like the streak were used, were employed to make people feel anxious and depressed. They also do stuff like adding pictures of your ex having fun on your newsfeed. They're not going to show your ex having a bad time. Show your ex having fun, then you're going to click on it. They use techniques drawn from Las Vegas slot machine algorithms, which are themselves based on decades of practice addicting gamblers to self-destructive behaviors. Now, the people I know who work at these companies or who used to are now feeling terrible about what they did. They want to undo the social media algorithms and the addictive interfaces that they developed. Sean Parker, who was one of the founders of Napster, who guided a young Mark Zuckerberg through the early days of Facebook, he now feels terrible about Facebook. He says it was built by consciously exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. And, and he's considering himself a conscientious objector from social media and starts worrying today, he's worrying, what is it doing to our children's brains? So there are potential reasons, I've tried to think about them, you know, for why a school would want to use social media, why it would want to put pictures of its students even on social media feeds. So maybe... Uh, a district with really bad community relations is trying to improve them by reaching people where they already are on social media. Maybe attendance at school events is low, or the town is so big that it's not really being exposed to its school children, and maybe they're they're down on a potential school budget or a bond issue. But in a community where people already have face-to-face contact, social media doesn't improve relationships or institutional affiliations, you know, research shows that it degrades them. So a famously bad school district might want to use social media, what, to chronicle its turnaround to the world at large, to what, uh, attract new families to the school district and then increase their property values and in turn increase the tax base, which leads to more money going to the schools and making it better. But most districts are not in need of that sort of rehabilitation and might actually be better at fixing their problems when they're not under the spotlight. Social media, you know, it can help administrators and employees promote their own perspectives and their careers, but it may be better to do this on a website or a blog than on a competitive and manipulative social media platform because When you go into your classroom as a student and you see your teacher holding his or her smartphone in order to take pictures of great moments or waiting for opportunities to share, what does that convey about what's going on in the classroom? Taking a selfie with a student, however well-meaning, it conveys that the moment is less significant than the tweet. That is sad. I want my kid to feel that what she's accomplished in class matters in its own right, even if, God forbid, it's not posted to Facebook. You know, social media, as I see it, has no place in school. 
Yes, we can use it as an example in a media literacy class. Say, let's look at Facebook. Let's see how it works. Who's, who runs it? What's the business model? How does the attention economy function? What's the algorithmic logic of its choices and the behavioral manipulation embedded in its interfaces? But we shouldn't be posting our kids' pictures, promoting our school activities, or trying to start important policy conversations on networks entirely unfit for the purpose. Look what social media did to electoral politics. Do you really want to integrate it into your classrooms? No. I mean, this shouldn't stop schools from having websites or posting announcements and pictures when it's appropriate to their own website or giving parents the ability to opt out from having their pictures used at all. And the same would go for running articles in a local paper. You know, those are our true media partners that are serving community interests. But we can't let our own addiction to social media cloud our judgment about how to educate our children and represent our schools. Please, we have to keep this stuff out of the classroom until at least we understand who's behind it, how it works, and how it's influencing our choices. There's no one I know who's more aware of the way that technologies are biased towards behaviors and outlooks and results that we may not realize are programmed into them than Damian Williams. My name is David Peskovitz, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seta, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Danielle Buten, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ghislaine Boddington, and I'm on Team Human. This is Genesis Briar Piorich, one half of Briar Piorich, and we're glad to say we are part of this beautiful organism, the humane species, otherwise known as Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, technology philosopher Damien Williams. I think so as as a simple person, at least for, for the for the beginning of this conversation, there's sort of like two kind of uh, directional flows that we can look at, that we can use at least provisionally to understand the impact of technology on people, the impact of people on technology. Like I yeah. totally accept it's a feedback loop and there's nothing we could do about it. Everything right. is everything. But right. to start, when, when I hear you talk about us needing a moral framework yes. to deal with autonomous systems. What I think of first, and most mm -hmm. of your stuff, the earlier stuff anyway, seems to be about this, is like, what is this stuff doing to us? What yes. does the 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 bias so a perfect a, a perfect good one? And look, you're you're a brown person, so you would even know about this experientially. Yeah. You know, is racial bias embedded into uh, uh, algorithms that have real profound impact on who goes to jail, how long yep. they go, and what yep. the fuck happens to their lives. Yep. Right. So 100%. it's so it's really, really real. We're not just right. talking about oh, I'm gonna buy Pepsi instead of Coke. Right. No, this isn't just like <laughs> oh, which way do I turn down the street? You know, because Waze told me to. It's like. Yeah, no, it's, it's how long does someone go to jail? It's how long, like how likely they are to, to get bail for, you know, being or waiting to be arraigned, like fully sentenced. Like all of these things are seriously impacting the lives of people. It's who gets jobs. It's who gets what kinds of jobs. It's who gets, you know, brought into the office, who gets even, you know, assessed for what positions. And all of these things are like once – we put them into algorithmic form once we translate them into this kind of, you know, iterative behavioring system, those biases, those very, very real human biases start to do weird things like really strange shit. Right. So, <laughs> so what's, a, so what's a, a, a kind of a user pathway for this? In other words, what's a, what's a, a real example of how, uh, uh, racial bias gets embedded into something and then screws somebody up. So one of my like primary go-tos for this is um, 
ProPublica just did a big series uh, back in 2016, uh, like they're, you know, kind of opening the black box kind of thing. And they're looking at what the algorithms are doing. And they started this series because they realized that there are bail setting algorithms that are being made use of in various counties and states across the United States right now that are like they're producing the same kinds of racial bias that you would see if you were dealing with somebody who had unconscious racism in their lives and their systems. And how could that happen? Because the algorithm hasn't had experiences with white and black people. They weren't raised by Archie Bunker, right? Right. So so why are they racist? They're racist because the people who program (laughs) them, because the people who who are coding these things aren't necessarily like, you know, they're not clan members, but they're people who have unconscious biases that have translated into the code that they make. Because, and this is the thing that I, I say a lot, code isn't neutral. It's a language, you know, and with any language, when you go to translate, you're going to make choices in translation and your life experience, your perspective is going to have unconscious effects on the kinds of translations that you make. So if you're living in a system where you've been buffeted by racial bias, even at an unconscious level for your entire life, and that's true for literally everyone that lives in the West and the United States, especially if you've been living in that system for this long, you're going to, when you go to make those translations, you're gonna code some of that in. And most importantly, if what your training data is, for that algorithm, for a bail setting algorithm especially, is who gets what kind of bail, who has previously gotten what kind of bail in what situations. You're coding it off of a data set that has that bias embedded in it. Because who gets higher setted bail, like whose whose bail rates are set at higher levels? Black people, non-white people, especially if you're talking about violent crimes. We're talking about drug-related crimes. So if that's the data set that the algorithm is working on when it goes to train to make the decisions that it's going to make, then that's the kind of thing it's going to reproduce because that's what it's been taught is the way that things work. So machine then, machine learning then yes. the, is, the, is, is a real problem. I mean, in some ways, it's almost better to look at technology or coding from an extremely pure, idealistic, let's come with a clean slate with what we actually believe. In other words, almost a more uh, Judaic understanding of, you know, this is the law and it's God's will and how do we see this working out, rather than having computers just watch how current jurists make millions and millions of decisions, because if anything, they're going to find the patterns, the underlying patterns that we're actually trying to to maybe repress if we're good people. We're trying to repress those and they're just going to spin them out and amplify them. Right. And that's exactly what tends to happen. Uh, So you get, you know, people who try to open this up and um, you see work being done on how these systems, you know, like they take those data sets and they start to make the kinds of sexist uh, relationships, like analogies between, you know, man is to doctor as woman is to, and every time it returns nurse. (laughs) So perfect. You have this, like, it's like this ground level kind of data set. White man is to, white man is to cop as black man is to thug. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that it kind of, it'll continue to reproduce. And everybody will, well, not everybody, but many people will respond to this by going, well, you know, that's what it's been trained on. That's its major experience. And then, you know, thinking that that's just like truth, that the fact that that's what it's been trained on is just, you know, objectively factual. And it has been trained on this, but what we have to get at is the fact of, okay, but why is it the case that these things are this way more often in society? Why has it been the case that women have more often been in positions of nursing rather than being doctors themselves, being hospital administrators, being in charge of things? Why is it the case that more often people of authority of in the position of law have been white men rather than black men, black women, Asian men, Asian women, any number of other potentialities. Well, that's because there's real reasons, though. It's because the law was there for white men to be able to stop black men from doing stuff. 
precisely. <laughs> and once we start to dig into that, once we recognize that, we realize that the data set that we're training these things on isn't just some like objective, oh, that's just the way things are. We're training them off of something that exists the way it exists because of real social antecedents. I know, but it gets so uh, there's this illusion of sterility. Like yes. it, this is your FICO score. Like it came from right. like, like it pure, came from the sky. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like, and it's computers and computers right. don't love or hate. They're just pure. Right. It's it's no. the machine. Nothing <laughs> and there's nothing we could do about it. That's what the right. computer right. says. It's what the right. oh, what do you want me to do? Right. You know? Like and that's that's exactly the problem. Like that that fact right there is exactly the problem. It's like we have this illusion that the computer said it, so it must be true. The code came out this way, so it must be right because it's pure, because it's objective, because it's just capital T true. And that's not the case at all. You know, these things are built, they are created, they are put together in a certain way. And the more that we allow ourselves to forget that, the more that we like cede control to these things that are not pure, not just perfectly objective in any way, shape, or form, the more we trick ourselves into thinking that they're perfectly objective, the worse off we're going to be. Right. Because what we're doing is we're just – we're not eliminating our biases. We're giving our biases to a system and then closing our eyes and saying they don't exist anymore. Right. <laughs> but then, then you know, the progressives among us – and I mean I don't think – I fall totally into this camp, but I'm sure I have on occasion, what we do is to, we say, you know, it's sort of that the John Dewey um, meets Nicholas Negroponte impulse is like, well, if all of these digital systems are kind of repressing the poor and the black and the disenfranchised and developing nations, let's just get them all online. Let's just get them all <laughs> laptops and right. teach them how to get on America <laughs> online and it's all going to be fine. Right. It's kind of like the neoliberal response is like, just, you know, sell the you know, sell them the tools that they need. and Everything will be fine. Like it's so there's this problem. I'm in uh, I'm in an STS program, uh, Science, Technology and Society. And there's this problem uh, that keeps coming up more and more in the late 20th and 21st century is um, the question of like we used to just think that if we democratize science, that everything would be fine. Right. Just give everybody the ability to engage give everybody the tools and the training to be a part of this and it'll all be fine. But that's just not the case because you have to give people a reason to want to be a part of it. You have to give people an understanding of what it means to be a part of it. You have to have goals. You have to have this understanding of what the thing you're trying to do is for. And if you give the tools to people and don't have some understanding of common goals, then you're not going to just get an outcome where everybody is working towards the common good and rising right. us all up. And so they're going to be like, everybody has different goals. Everybody has different dreams. Everybody has different values. And until you can start to have those conversations across lines of values, just handing somebody a laptop and teaching them how to code isn't going to get you the outcome of, well, let's all of us work towards a common, more equal society. Right. Exactly. I mean, this was the problem. You know, I wrote this book in, uh, I don't know, in 2011 called Programmer Be Programmed. And it was really used by kind of the code literacy movement to say, this is why we've got to teach JavaScript or whatever right, in, right. in elementary <laughs> schools. And I'm like, no, if you actually read the book, I'm talking about, you know, if you are not programming your society, then your society is programming you. You have to understand the biases of these technologies. And finally, the last chapter was called Purpose. It's like, what are you solving for? And we're using all of this stuff that we don't even know what it's solving for. And sometimes it's solving for us, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it's trying to sort us out as much as possible <laughs> to be able to better sell us stuff. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to like, okay, so I know which targeted ads will work on Doug at which point in the day. Like that's, that's And the that's the that's least nefarious of them all, you know, right. you compared know, to the stuff you're talking about. Yeah. And I mean – so one of the things that, you know, that comes up in all of this is so we're talking about the fact that we're training these systems, we're building these systems based on sets of principles, and those sets of principles then get turned into systems of behavior. And then those systems of behavior get spun out into like overarching and interlocking systems of society. So if we are not careful from the ground up, then the systems that get spun out and that get built around us that encompass our daily lives that we navigate through every day will be made out of things that we've made ourselves 
completely ignorant of. In that same way, if we are not actively engaged in trying to understand the values of our society, trying to program ourselves, trying to understand how we all get programmed, how we've all been programmed, and actively take part in this kind of cooperative engagement of understanding why we are the way we are and trying to communicate with each other, then we're just going to keep falling prey to the systems that do get built around us and not actually making a cooperative society that can work together in some real meaningful way. Right. I mean, and then there's, there's, in, as you're speaking, I mean, especially for those are, who are students listening, I mean, there's shades of Foucault, there's yes. shades of Postman, and then shades of, um, um, what's his name, Upstate, who, um, he got the one who got in trouble for writing about Robert Moses and the buses. Oh, and, uh, Langdon Winner. Langdon Winner in there too. And Dr. And, Winner is all, often on my mind. <laughs> no, was, I love him, you know, and he's yeah. such a good case study as a person. I mean, if you ever really, anybody's interested in education, how he got denied tenure and then had to move on and what, I mean, it just goes to show you the smartest among us are going to get the, the wrath of the institution. But, but what you sort of are bringing to this that I haven't heard before is, is, and maybe it's cause you know, you're from a younger generation than them is what happens on the other side. It's as if these things get so embedded that you're mm -hmm. born into this world where those things may as well be facts of nature, right. just features of the landscape. Exactly. So then if you're accepting that, okay, digital technology is important. And if you don't know it, it's like literacy or anything else, then it's like you're, you're, you're the speed of your connection to the internet then is as if it's a virtue. Exactly. <laughs> and so then we get to talk about the questions of, so in the United States, what is up with net neutrality? What is up with who gets what access when and to do what? And who gets to determine who's virtuous enough to deserve that access? Heavy scare quotes around all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have these people who you know make up the corporations that want to sell you these things, their things specifically, determining, well, as long as you're using our products, these vertically integrated you know, suite of things, then sure, you can get really high speed broadband internet. But if you start to veer over into a competitor, then I don't know about that. Maybe you don't get to access your school's textbook, or maybe you don't get to do your homework quite as well or easily. And maybe your connection won't be as stable when you're trying to Skype into your video chat with a professor. All of these things start to, you know, they sound nefarious and conspiracy theory-ish, but like this is honestly almost a stated aim of what people want to be able to do. They want to be able to control how they get to deliver the content and they want obviously to deliver their content. They want you to buy from them. That's the way that capitalism works. Right. But that was, <laughs> that was the whole reverse point of the internet. Exactly. exactly. You, they had TV, they had radio and now they're <laughs> turning my net into Netflix. Exactly. You know, the same way the blockchain, the blockchain is about to become banking. You know, right. and nobody sees that because nobody understands how the friggin' thing works. But once, <laughs> okay. once the mining is over, it's like, right. how does who's you have to then pay somebody to verify your transactions? Who are we gonna pay? The same old Credit Suisse is gonna come on and say, "We'll verify your blockchain <laughs> transactions," and we're back to square one. I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was actually a large scale banking institution uh, just last week or two weeks ago that said, "Yeah, we're gonna get into." you know, blockchain verification, we're going to, you know, this, we're going to start doing our business, you know, a major part of our business in this way. And I'm just like, this is precisely what this was supposed to be against, right? This was what this was supposed to, to, you know, decentralize this locus of control, right? And give people the ability to, to determine value in a new kind of way. But this is and, where we were wrong to think that, oh, I did anyway in the early 90s. Oh, the internet's going to be biased towards decentralization and distributed right. everything. Just right. because it exists, it's going to make everything better. And it, it didn't. Did not. <laughs> no, we were, we were all very optimistic and we were very wrong. Um, it's, you know, that's the, the thing is we've, we forgot that it, no matter how powerful a tool is, no matter how amazing a tool is in and of itself, um, the way in which it can be put to use does matter. 
and it can be put to use and it can be subverted for the purposes of re-centralizing control uh, unless we do the active work of maintaining that decentralization, unless we understand and can communicate to other people why that decentralization should be seen as a virtue, then people are going to want ease. I mean, that's that's not a, a knock on to anybody. That's a fact. We we have lives. We have things that we're doing. We have to feed our families. We have to make our ways through the day. And so to be able to say this thing takes some of the load off, some of the burden off of my day because I know what it will be like. I know the quality. I know where it comes from and I can pick it up, make use of it and then put it back down and it'll be fine. Whether that's fast food or whether it's, you know, a big chain grocery store or whether it's, you know, Bitcoin once that starts being available at Target or whatever it is, that is meaningful. It's important because these things are hard and we have lives to lead. But at the same time, we also have to understand that the people who have control over these things do not not even always, but almost never. They almost never have our best interests at heart. Our best interests are at best incidental to them because they will keep us alive long enough for us to buy more things right. from them. I mean, and now there's a few, and, you know, a few, yeah. and partly as a result of the work that you and I are doing, there's a few like Tristan Harris and and the others, uh, you know, who are, are sort of becoming whistleblowers from the within the industry and admitting to doing the right. stuff that we've been saying that they've been doing since, you know, uh, BJ Fogg <laughs> started his Captology Lab at Stanford to teach them how to do it. Um, but uh, on a certain level, it feels as if what they're saying is, oh, well, now... These algorithms are all bad, but we're going to make better algorithms. And it seems to me the job maybe not to develop more technologies to stop the current technologies from doing bad stuff to us, but somehow enhancing our cultural resiliency as humans to recognize this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot of people within uh, philosophy of technology and STS are, are doing work in that vein where they're trying to say, look. You know, we are going to continue to make new technologies. We're going to continue to develop these new things. That's true. But the way in which we go about them, the way in which we maintain the work that we have already done, the way in which we approach and engage with the things that exist in the world, this matters too. And we need to put more thought and effort into that kind of engagement, those kinds of, you know, valuative virtues. Um, people like uh, Shannon Valor who wrote Technology and the Virtues, she talks about this idea specifically, like the ways in which we approach the technologies that we build, that we've already built, that are already a massive part and will only get larger within the scope of our lives. We have to reframe what it is to, what it means to engage these things in this way. And if we can do that, then we can hopefully manage to make a meaning again in our lives. Um, without being just run roughshod over. I mean, by the these thing things. I wonder though is is how unique is this is the technological revolution compared to other uh, media revolutions, even going back as far as mm. language. You know, the, the English language got embedded yep. with all this stuff. I mean, talk to Genesis P. Orridge or, or William Burroughs, and they'll oh, yeah. tell you how, you know, yep. the king encoded all of this stuff. And even the word fuck means yep. fornication under control of the king. I mean, so yep. Yep. what's going on? I mean, it, it is, I almost want to ask, you know, has, has the digital metaphor and digital technology, has it eroded human autonomy differently than the other metaphors and media that we've used to understand ourselves? I would say yes, but I think that it's almost trivially true in the way that that's a yes, because I think that, as you say, like technology is uh, a matter of con like changing the ways in which we engage the environment and, and build tools and build systems and construct and behave in a manner of constructing concepts to deal with the world in which we live. It always has been. Right now, the dominant mode of that is digital. And so the digital content, the digital metaphor, the digital conceptualization is crucial to that. And so we focus in that way and it changes us that way. But you, you said it yourself, language is a technology. 
language is perhaps the first technology that we ever made use of. The ability to implant concepts into the mind of another, easily and portably. You can trace the roots of language and technology and magic back to a central point. So you have magic in the sense of the occult or action at a distance or however you want to talk about magic, but it's bound up with language. It's bound up with technology and techne as technical knowledge, as art, as craft comes from the same root as these ideas of magical practice, of magical art, magical craft, skill craft. Um, and those roots are found in cultures around the world. You know, you have them similar roots and similar gods for magic and language and technology and the Yoruba traditions of West Africa and the, the Greek traditions, the Norse traditions, you have them. I mean, this is part of why so, there was such a strong attraction for us from the, the, you know, psychedelic spiritual rave, grateful dead community right. to early exactly. computing technologies. Exactly. Cause it was literally using a language to build a world right to summon <laughs> hallucinations <laughs> and then and then but, but you'd you'd bring them into into reality though yes yes exactly and that's exactly it and so this idea of the digital as the kind of uh the fulfillment of this promise of psychedelia was easily made right like that bridge was was easy to make but it's still along a continuum it's still a part of the the way in which we have always sought to change, control, or otherwise engage the world around us. You know, sometimes we do it in a more collaborative way. We engage the world collaboratively and we are changed by it as it changes us and we do that consciously. But sometimes we try to take control and sometimes we try to more actively manipulate and restrain and in some way direct the power of the world in which and of which we are a part. That has always been the case. And I think that the digital as it stands is the most recent battleground crux of that kind of, you know, back and forth, that contention between how we think about what it is we do when we do technology, when we use language. I mean, the other, the other, real strong thread in, in your work and, and, and my thinking too, um, that brings us back into toward the occult really, or what we'd call what people call the occult is that, you know, if, right. if our technologies and our media carry so many of the hallmarks of human bias, then yes. how do we know what we're seeing and sensing through it. If I'm using a technology to sense reality and that technology, even the glasses on my face, if they're embedded with the values of this culture, then am I seeing the thing or am I seeing the values? Once again, I go back to philosophy of technology and I go back to SDS because the answer to that has always been <laughs> both. You are seeing the the social construction and the world and the the values and the the lived perspectives that went into making lens technology a thing but you are also seeing the world as much as we ever have access to it we're never seeing an unmediated world we're never engaging you know the this world unmediated we're seeing it less mediated but never completely unmediated even our senses are modulated and shaped by the context and the experience of the world in which we live. But this, like the way in which my lenses change and refocus and shape the world changes what I can think about, what I can see, what I can literally apprehend. Right. And, it, <laughs> um, and, and right. And when you start with that on one end of the spectrum, and that's pretty benign, all the way to um, MP3, say, in the middle, an MP3 music algorithm, which pretends to let me hear the sounds or it, it recreates the experience of listening to music without giving me any right. actual music all the way to right. the algorithmic filters on Facebook that are teaching me about my president and, and patriotism right. and, and, and the, the, right. the people climbing over the wall. Um, right. uh, we're screwed in that way. So then, yep. <laughs> but then it feels like if that's going on on the one hand and then science, you know, which 
which you also critique in your work, science, which in its current incarnation is so applied and utilitarian as to become uh, very relative. In other words, this leads to that rather than everything kind of leads to everything at once. There's no sense of, of, of real systems thinking yet in science. Then, then it feels like the only way to go is the occult, is to is to start, you yes. know, you you do shielding, as as you say, shielding from the yeah. occult, or what what a a a Buddhist might just call some kind of a, a just sit or or a yoga, you yeah. know, you reset. Um yeah. like a centering but practice. But that's taking yeah. us to the occult. So then like you center yeah. and perceive. I mean, this almost sounds scary to say, you start perceiving reality directly through your organism. <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's a like, that's one of the things that Buddhists and that Buddhist meditation practice tries to get at directly is this, you know, unmediated experience. And, you know, many Buddhist practitioners say that that's a thing that you can, you can get, you can have the, the, the experience with as few perceptual, like, blocks as possible, just pure experience. Uh, some Buddhist practitioners say that that's not really what you're getting but you're getting as close as any living thing can get <laughs> and i i don't know i go i go back and forth on that myself but i i think that you're you're almost always somewhat mediated if only by your own drives goals perspectives and expectations but it's i don't know i mean again the the occult aspect of it is not necessarily it doesn't have to be uh, oh my God, scary, or as some people pejoratively call it, the woo right. side of things, right? It doesn't, it's about tools for thinking about the world in different ways. And everything that we do as a species, and I think you could probably say this is true for most living things on the planet, um, everything we do is an attempt to grapple with our place in the order of things we have abstracted that out and we have turned it into some really complex random crap, but everything we do is an attempt to try to get some sense of our place in the order of things to figure out what we're here for, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And even if not to figure it out, then to just sit with it and but be that's in it. fun. And that, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be fun. But what happens is that once people start to get scared, once they start to, you know, once we start to get anxious about our place and things, once we start to get worst you know, case, upset you're about... fungus on a rock <laughs> hurling through cold and meaningless <laughs> space and you're going to die and nothing else will happen. Right. That worst case. Yeah. That's <laughs> a, and that's, that's not even scenario. so bad in itself because we here we go. We're spinning. Yeah, right. planet. Right. It, could be, it could be pretty cool. <laughs> <How> <laughs> freaky. Pretty cool. But, at the sa- but at the same time, like, uh, you know, if if you come to that realization after a lifetime of being inundated with messages about, you know, individuality, meaning you have to find your meaning, make your meaning, make your way in the world. You have to do something. You have to be productive. You have to, you know, all of these things that tell you that if you're not doing the right kind of thing, then you're worthless. Then to come to an understanding where you feel, well, maybe if the worth that I have to make, I have to make it. Maybe the worth that there is, the meaning that there is, is something that I have to figure out and describe and build and make sure that it builds and fits and works within the mechanism and the system of everything else. And that when I make mine, that'll change everything else. And other people will change to fit the thing that I'm. And once you get the scope of that, that's massive. And that can be Yeah, but that's also revolution. Absolutely. And it just takes, I think most of us have to sit with it for a while before we can get through right. the paralysis. Or the place the I'm trying to take people with this with this show and this movement, if you will, is okay. So find mm-hmm. the others. You know, join the team. You don't have yeah. to do this alone. Yeah. You can't do this right. alone. And yeah. that's crucial. That's crucial. That's absolutely crucial. And I think that's one of the things that gets lost a lot, especially in um, the the mode of technological innovation, the mode of scientific innovation, the mode of politics and right. Western civilization. Whose achievement that was this? Have, who gets the footnote? Who gets the money? Who's copyright? Who's patent? Right. And then we're lost. Right. I'm in academia, and that question is like that's literally the the difference between do I get a a long term paycheck or do I get 
you know, to just sit in my room yeah. for the rest of my life. It only matters till tenure. And then if you're smart, exactly. then you just go, screw it. Everything is everybody's. Just and give it away. Whatever. Most of them exactly. don't because they've exactly. been indoctrinated by then to take credit for every friggin' thing in the spinning of right. the planet. But right. but I've, I've known some people who have done, like once they've gotten tenure, their whole deal is to use that place, that position of power and privilege and say, here, exactly to promote this, the others. That's why as soon as I got there, the day that yeah. I got tenure was like when I was like, I'm going on a listening tour. And that's what started this show. Yeah. It's like, all right, now I'm going to use what I got yeah. to elevate the others and I can go get old. But yeah. the place all this brings me and the question I've got for you is, do you see us using these, uh, using our insight, using our understanding of connection to terra firma and the real world and eye contact and we're finding our power in solidarity and conspiracy with other people. Do you see ways that we can use technology as part of our occult practice? Or is our occult practice primarily to shield us from what technology is trying to do to us? Well, I think... I think everything that we do, everything that we can do, can be, if understood correctly, if engaged from a position of intentionality with a recognition of the implications of what we're building, recognizing that we can't always anticipate every potential unforeseen, but we can try to be more agile and we can try to be more mindful as we do these things, as we make these technologies, as we use them, that we can use them and build them in such a way that we can increase connection. Um, but we also have to be aware that those tools for increasing connection can be appropriated, repackaged, and sold. And we have to be vigilant, careful, mindful about the ways in which someone will always, because of the nature of the system that we currently exist within, try to sell us salvation, um, whatever that salvation might look like. Or sell uh, us one another. The, you know. Exactly. Precisely that. Um, and so the idea of being able to use our our practice, our values, whether it's, um, you know, the occult practices or whether it's, you know, just a kind of more broadly construed mindfulness, uh, intentionality to protect ourselves from being taken advantage of, to protect each other from being taken advantage of. That's a major part of what it takes to, to move forward right now. But it's also just one component of what it will take to be able to have a conversation with other people about values, right? We have to be able to talk to each other about what it is that means something to us. And some of us haven't even ever asked ourselves that question. And so to get ourselves to start asking the question of why are we doing the things that we do? Why do the things that mean something to us mean something to us at all? What do we want to do with them? How do we want them to continue? What world do we want to build? What kind of world and why? And then once we are doing that, then we can start to think differently about the context in which we build the technologies that we build, that we use. We can start to think differently about the principles that we build into the technologies. Because if we recognize that we are biased creatures, because we are, because we're alive, because we have perspectives, and that's what bias means. If we recognize that that's true of us, then when we go to translate that into technologies, we can take steps to mitigate that bias. We can take steps to, as we call it in religious studies, we can bracket right. it out. Right. We can say, here's this thing that I tend to do, this kind of way that I tend to exist in the world. When I engage this new thing, when I go to build something new and I follow that path that I tend to follow, am I doing it because it's the right path to follow or am I doing it because it's the path I tend to follow and it's easier right. for me? And if I can question that, I can reflect on that and I can take steps to explore other paths and see well, what happens if I integrate this other path? What happens if I integrate this other perspective, this other set of lived experiences, this other kind of knowledge? If I can take these other kinds of ways of thinking about living within the world and I can integrate them with the thing that I'm trying to do, won't that make my project stronger? Won't that make the world that I'm trying to build better, more inclusive, just won't that build the kind of world where we can understand each other better? And again, even that project has been and can be subverted. 
people take that idea of inclusivity and engagement and weaponize it and wield it like a cudgel against people and say, well, if you don't accept all viewpoints, if you don't accept everyone, fascism, if you don't accept the idea of genocide because the person was born the way that they were born, then you're not really inclusive, are you? And the answer is not that inclusive. <laughs> that once once you start to say that you're, you know, that that certain pe- types of people deserve to be eliminated simply because of the way that they were born, not choices that they've made, not life paths that they have directed themselves upon, but because of how they were born. I think at that point you have you've stepped outside the bounds and you're you're not genuinely engaging the process you're not sincerely engaging the process of inclusivity you're using the word to give yourself a toehold and then once you have that toehold you'll eliminate anybody you can who's not like you well and that's yeah <laughs> i mean but but you it kind of scared me a little bit in one of your pieces you kind of include technology in those others and and as as us i mean you say in mm-hmm. one section you said we need to be able to listen to a machine mind when it tells us we're causing it harm so then if for what i say because i've just been so damaged by these things if our ais and algorithms the same ones trying to get us to act against our own best interest if they learn to plead like yeah. babies for us don't don't turn me off don't turn me off you're killing <laughs> me mommy mommy you're killing me right. They'll do that just not because they are, have feelings or they think I'm the tamami, but because they find out what works. Uh, there have been a number of people who've talked about this potential danger, and it's it's a real danger. I mean, we're not yet at a place where we have robust, you know, artificial general intelligence or you know, machine consciousness. We're not there yet, but there's the possibility that somebody might be able to fake one up that's good enough to right, make those exactly. kinds of Exactly. The Turing test has much less to do and, with the development of technology than the stupidity of people to to fall for it. Right. <laughs> right. And that's exactly that's exactly the problem. Is so if it can. If somebody can build a thing that can learn to play on our sympathies and our fears, then that's that's a real issue. That's something we have to be very concerned about. Um, but at the same time, I do I do worry about, and I know that it's it sounds to many people it sounds scary, and to some other people it sounds absurd. But um, I do worry that if we ever do manage to create something that is conscious in a way that we would recognize that we would be able to you know, engage with in the same way that we engage with humans or non-human animals, um, that we would discount the things that it tells us about its experience of existence because, well, just because it's technological, just because it's been created in that particular way. And I worry that if we end up doing that, we find ourselves in the same pattern of behavior that allowed us to say that people of certain neurological configurations weren't really people or weren't really feeling that people of certain skin colors weren't really people and didn't feel pain the same kind of way that we did that women you know aren't really people in the same way that men were and all of these things that we keep doing down through history and i don't really have yet i mean it's part major part of the project i guess um but i don't have yet a good idea a good sense of how we bridge that divide between the possibility of a machine being built and programmed well enough to pretend like it's in pain and one that actually well, is. And the others, I, I find our, <laughs> our, our movies and popular culture is so much more willing to weep for a, a sci-fi cybernetic robot slave fiction than yes. Yes. all of the living extant victims <laughs> yes. of slavery in America right now still yes. suffering under right, the right, policies right. that are policies yep. of slavery. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct about that. We are we are much more willing to tell those stories than we are to tell the stories of, you know, people who are suffering under policies of slavery, people who are in jail in, you know, California and work camps right now working for no pay, who are ostensibly, you know, just prisoners doing work but they're actually they got past a a joint sitting on a curb in la (laughs) and happened to be brown exactly 
Exactly. And so, you know, we have a word for when we lock people up and don't let them leave and make them work for no pay. It's called slavery. (laughs) That's, that's the word. Um, but you know, we, we don't, we don't want to tell those stories. We don't like to, to look at those stories. And so what I like to, I like to try to do, because I do a lot of work with pop culture in this realm as well, because it's a, it's a place that we talk about these things more often than basically anywhere else. But, um, well, it used to be. Now it's literally every day of our lives. Um, but I like to try to to take those stories and say, like to, to actively invert them, to, to turn them inside out and say, if we tell this story this way, and if you think about this story this way, here's how you can see that this story is the story of a 28-year-old woman who's currently in jail for firing a gun at her longtime abuser. Here's the story that's about somebody who's been made to work for their entire lives. That's literally the story of somebody who is, you know, working in a prison factory right now because, yeah, because they got past a joint or because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with too many traffic tickets. These stories can be used to mirror and make an inroad to get people to think seriously about the lived experiences of people who are alive right now, human beings who are undergoing these kinds of oppression right, right now to say, this isn't just, you know, some fantasy. This is something that living people have been through, are going through. And if we are not very careful and very vigilant, and if we are not hardworking about it as soon as possible, they will continue to go through this. They will continue to live with this because these systems are still in place. And it's if we're not really careful and mindful, intentional about this, it's only going to get worse. Because these systems will get automated, embedded, and then uh, not even recognized to exist. We'll hand, the pro- we'll hand the controls off again and we'll s- close our eyes and say, oh, it's objective now. We've systematized it. We've objectified it. We've made it factual and true, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. All that there is is this thing, and we'll never acknowledge that we built this thing, and that we built it from us, and that everything that is flawed in us is flawed in it. Well, thank you, David Williams, for intervening on behalf of uh, the human and all species and uh, hopefully bringing us to a place of, uh, uh, if not, if not uh, a greater autonomy, at least greater awareness of what's, of what's going down. <laughs> so that's all I can hope for is greater awareness. And then once we are aware, we can figure out what to do from there. Thank you very much for having me. I really, this has been a, a really great conversation. I really appreciated it. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was technology philosopher Damian Williams. You can find more of his work at afutureworththinkingabout.com. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human our last best hope for peace. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.